Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The week begins with Harm Banholtz on Bloomberg Surveillance, SUNY Credit Bank Chief U.S. Economist. Good morning to you, Harm. The trade happy talk ending as quickly as it started. How do you get any clarity on the direction of travel going into the G20 this month? No, we don't. Uh, and it has been a constant feature of uh, US-China uh, trade negotiations that we um, usually or we frequently had positive news that were being shot down a few days later or a few hours later by another member of the administration. So, I mean, really, it was not too surprising that this happens. I mean, it's always a timing that you never know. And the market still seems to be uh, gotten on the wrong foot of that. So, it, but... But again, uh, the the only the only announcement that we could believe then is we see the two presidents uh, showing up in front of the camera with a, with a signed piece of of of, of a contract. Uh, is, treaty. Th- is this back and forth, this apparent contradiction, a feature of the negotiations or a bug? Well, it has been a constant feature, and I think it is a bug. Even so, I mean, on the. You can say it is one of these uh, negotiation tactics uh, of the art of the deal. You know, as I said, good cop, bad cop uh, type of thing. So that at the end of the day, the president can eventually be the good cop when he talks to the Chinese. But y- you cannot help that there is also um, the lack of communication within the administration itself so that there's not quite an agreement uh, within the senior officials of how to interpret the latest moves and developments. So um, the backdrop to all of this is global deceleration for the global economy. The United States doesn't appear to be a feature of that thing. Will it be? Yes, it will be. And I mean, it's pretty easy to explain why the U.S. has not been a feature of that deceleration. I've been just trying to calculate a, a cyclically adjusted measure of the fiscal deficit. So if you look at the output gap and you look at the unemployment gap, in his, his historical correlations would have suggested that we should have a balanced budget at this point. Instead, we are almost running a 4% def- 4% of GDP deficit. This gap which is a four percentage point deficit, is the largest that we see since the mid-60s when we had the Kennedy tax cuts, the Vietnam War, also when the unemployment rate was 3.7%. So it's it's very easy well, to explain. And it's just a question when the stimulus uh, fades, uh, the impact of the stimulus fades. I think it's we've seen peak growth right now, heading into slower growth next year. With the, the huge news flow of the weekend, I read a number of things. John Farrell, one of the things I read was uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer Hammond in austerity, and there's a whole different twist on that in Europe, and particularly in the, the United Kingdom. Harm, is that the surprise of this election and into the presidential campaign, is we'll have a discussion of austerity into 2020 and far more into 2021 and 2000. I can't believe I'm saying 2022, John. I didn't. That's a long ways away. It's coming around. It's coming around. It's coming around. Do you mean austerity? Are we going to have an American austerity discussion? No. no we, I think we should have. I mean, austerity sounds sounds harsh, but but again, we we are having a a, a economy running at at full capacity, um, and as I said, the, the deficit should be much better. Maybe we should even run a surplus. But really, the talk right now is um, if, if Republicans should keep the majority in in Congress in both chambers. Um, there may be talk about another tax cut, 
right? I mean, maybe there was just an election campaign, yeah. uh, but they're, they're talking about more tax cuts. And then there is a talk about if, if, if Democrats win the House, about an infrastructure push. I mean, I honestly think that neither of that will happen, but the debate is going in the direction of even more stimulus. I want to continue the conversation on the midterms in just a moment. Let's talk about the budget deficit just quickly. You mentioned this comparison to the 1960s at 4% of GDP. Just looking at the budget deficit over the last 10 years, it's pretty clear that we have hit that level before and multiple times and stayed there. What's the 1960s comparison really about harm? Just explain that a little bit more. The comparison is about um, a cyclically adjusted deficit. So where okay. the deficit should be given the state of the economy and where the deficit actually is. Right? So that is a stimulus over and above what is needed by the economy, if you want. Right? And, and this is right now the biggest that we have seen since the... Since Thank the you for it's clarifying not, It's not that. the absolute deficit, to be yeah. clear. Yes. It's just important to yep. clarify that sure. point, Harm. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the midterms then. What is your base case? Well, the base case has to be that, that we see a split Congress, that um, the Democrats take the House. But I would like to uh, emphasize, uh, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Tom talks about Monte Carlo simulations a bit later, um, that there is a strong um, or non-negligible chance that Republicans actually do keep the House. Because simply if you just look at gerrymandering and all this, I do think that, uh, that Democrats need to win the popular vote in the House elections by more than five percentage points. Uh, and right now, if you look at the latest polls, the advantage is somewhere between seven and eight. So we are once again in this rounding area um, area where, where there is a chance that Republicans keep the House. But again, if I have to pick a side, I, I would yeah. not bet against the polls uh, that Democrats win it. But again, we should also not underestimate the chance that Republicans keep everything. Well, a lot of people, Tom, are worried about the 2016 scenario, that the political surprise materializes. And no I question. Say, I, I would, no question I would say my reading. two things surprised people. No in 2016, not just the outcome, but the outcome of the outcome. Um, it wasn't just that oh, President Trump... You're getting philosophical it, it wasn't just that President now. Trump won. It was that what people expected to happen if President Trump won did not happen. The economy didn't roll over. Markets didn't roll over. Something yeah, very Brett different Stevens happened. Brett Stevens captures that in the New York Times. So let's today, talk right? about the expected outcome <clears throat> and the outcome of the outcome. Can we just challenge the idea of what <laughs> happens if the base case materializes. Is this Kantian? You're the German here. Is he on the edge of... A, is it Jung or Kant? He's on the edge of there. Holy. Uh, so we should forecast our forecast My mistake. teacher in psychology <laughs> said you can't get a C. And I got a quality D when I studied Kant. The outcome of the outcome. Go. Yeah, and again, we should forecast our forecast mistake, right? Is that basically what you're asking? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, my view is that the economy ultimately takes over and um, and that is as we talked earlier yeah. that we see a growth slowdown i think that is the dominating topic of 2019 yes there will be noise maybe after okay, the election result and all we, this but but the economy is stronger than the political to cycle. john's good question let me give you the outcome of the outcome of the <laughs> outcome which is if we get a bundle slowdown does it take the gains of the outcome outcome from the gilded of the gilded age? Oh, you're killing me. Or is the new <laughs> slowdown really going to affect the broad middle class? Like, when things go up, the gilded age makes it. But when things go down, the outcome of the outcome, I'm going to the fourth power here. Nice. The outcome of the outcome <laughs> is the middle class gets hammered. Yes, that's usually the case. Thank you. See that answer? I love that he answered. it was a yes, yes, I, yes. I love that he answered. Han Van Helms joining us from <laughs> Unicredit. What a week ahead we got coming up. It's Tom exciting. King. I said I said to Afterthought, she's so excited about the elections. I said, yeah, I'll get the elections and Fed meeting. 
and it's just a it's one of those magical weeks where it's just crazy is it fair just to say that this isn't your normal midterm election and yes, this has got a that, kind of mini a presidential vibe to it i have the clearest memory of the evening in 1994 and the only media that was on when we figured it out was cbs and dan rather everybody else had gone back to programming and it came out essentially came out of nowhere is it like 94 you know you don't know till wednesday but the answer is yes it's just and with all the cultural events and the the two presidents campaigning uh, it, it's really john it's really exciting do you think this is because the president has just generated a whole lot more interest in politics no, yes i think you know whatever anybody's politics yes it is centered uh uniquely around this unique president there's no question about that but just it was fun this weekend reading jahar mentioned the monte carlo that was nate silver in 538 with a brilliant mathematical dissertation in english about independence each district is not independent statistically yeah. there's some correlations which leads to should we go to the fifth power an outcome of the outcome of the outcome of the outcome of the outcome luckily we've run out of time <laughs> great to have Harman Holtz of Uni Credit yes. with us this Monday morning as we kick off a great week for you we're in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York and now joining us from Tehran and this is incredibly timely with headlines a bit ago the United States Treasury says the U.S. fully reimposes sanctions on Iran. The Treasury says over 700 persons under Iranian sanctions. And joining us, someone who's given us incredible service in Tehran, Golnar Montevalli joins us uh, right now. What will be the immediate uh, reaction, Golnar, in your Tehran to this new round of U.S. sanctions? I think people have known, obviously, since May that this was coming and the timings and the wind down periods were announced in advance. So I think it's just been kind of this sort of creeping, this sense that, you know, this is something that was just going to happen that they couldn't do, that Iranians themselves or the government couldn't do very much about, um, you know, it's the, the sense of inevitability um, about the fact that these right. sanctions obviously came into effect overnight. But of course, people are very worried. They're fearful. There's a sense of yeah. resignation and exhaustion as well because they've been here before and they thought they had a nuclear deal that had resolved the situation. Right. And, and clearly, it's it's you know it's kind of gone backwards again for them. Golnar, so many people have images or stereotypes of Persia and then Iran and then the new Iran as well. Tehran is over 14 million people. What mm -hmm. does it actually do to business? Well, you, you know, here I speak to a lot of people in the private sector and people running small businesses, small to medium-sized businesses. And something like this does, you know, a tremendous, a lot of, a tremendous damage psychologically. You know, we know that the economy hates uncertainty and hates a sense of having no idea what's, what's happening, what's going to happen from one day to the next. And when the currency here fluctuates, as it has been doing over the past six months in these kind of huge moves, then from literally from one day to the next day, you don't know what you can do. You don't know whether you can buy anything. You don't know whether your supplier is going to be able to sell you anything. You don't know whether you can keep your employees on for the next month. You know, there are small businesses here who haven't paid employees for months or at least for the past three months. I know of at least one or two like that. These are small yeah. businesses. 
And the other thing is here, the SME community actually really needed the nuclear deal because in Europe, a lot of the businesses that can work with Iran are also SMEs because they don't need those huge levels of capital that the big, you know, um, upper tier, big international banks can't, you know, still still can't get involved with in Iran. So that area is really going to be hurt. And, you know, that sector is really important for graduates here. You know, Iran produces a huge amount of university graduates, most of them women. So, you know, it's it's a sad story, particularly for the middle class here. There is this stereotype of Tehran and Iran that doesn't quite meet the reality, um, specifically Mm. the education of the society. And Mm -hmm. Golab, you talk up Mm -hmm. and bring up the, uh, the issue of opportunities. Let's just talk about the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action because it was a multilateral accord and the president in this treasury has reimposed sanctions on Iran unilaterally. Does that make it different this time around or is the reality still the same on the ground? I actually think it makes a, I think it makes a big difference. I think if there's one area that many Iranians have taken comfort in, it's the fact that this is something that the United States has made an independent um, this is an independent decision, as you said, unilaterally, that's been made by the United States. They haven't had the Europeans on their side. Quite the opposite. The, the, the Europeans, we know, are still scrambling to try and get this special purpose vehicle fixed for Iran. And also China and Russia have spoken out and criticized the sanctions. And we've had these countries manage to get waivers out of the U.S. Treasury. And I think that actually has a huge effect. Um, to you know, uh, uh, psychologically to some extent on on people, but the fact is, in practical terms, the U.S. dollar here is a ma- is a major gauge of confidence of people, spending power, um, and and you know the, the price of the dollar here has has skyrocketed over the past six months, and that has a real tangible impact on people's day to day lives. It really cuts their spending power and it's happened you know with speed but you know there is this sense that the united states is is isolated in in this decision that it's made yeah. and that you know even rohani capitalized on this this morning when he said we've managed to bring the european europeans on that side and on our side and that's a huge diplomatic well, coup for iran Gulner, thank you so much from tehran Maggie Green with us, uh, as we consider the American economy and other things global as well. Uh, Megan, uh, when do you get a better framework of what Q4 is? Do you have to wait to the end of the quarter, or can you begin to really tell here? Well, you can start to see signals in the data early on. Um, I would ignore all the kind of nowcasts at this stage, though. It's just too early in the quarter. But, for example, things like, you know, new foreign orders are coming through um, much weaker in the ISM survey data, and that suggests maybe trade is starting to bite. So that's giving us some indication. Um, Things like slightly stronger wage growth, though partly, you know, a base effect issue, that's suggesting we're going to continue to get kind of incremental wage growth and and therefore an incremental acceleration of inflation. That helps give us a picture. But to really have a sense of kind of what what the number is going to come in at for Q4, you've got to wait till a bit later in the quarter. Megan, what's the danger that the U.S. economy starts to run hard? So I think it's actually pretty low. Um, You know, normally at this late stage in the business cycle, if you had the kind of fiscal stimulus that we've had in the U.S., you would expect the economy to overheat. But if you're looking at the data, the soft data all looks 
absolutely euphoric. So that suggests maybe the economy is overheating. If you look at the hard data, however, uh, it's pretty decidedly lackluster. So things like retail sales, new bank loans, um, real wage growth even, they're, they're all looking pretty weak. And so that suggests there aren't actually any indicators in, in the hard data that we're about to overheat. So I think this business cycle is a bit different just because it's a lot longer because we've had so much central bank intervention. Um, so, you know, I would agree we're in the late stage of the business cycle, but we're not going to see the late stage surge in inflation or the overheating um, for a while, I don't think. So any reason to believe that the Federal Reserve is going to change course in terms of pace of rate hikes anytime soon, Megan? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think a lot of investors have assumed that the Fed turned a bit more hawkish when Jay Powell came out and said he thought we were still pretty far away from the neutral rate, and that suggested we could hike a lot more. I think that's already baked into the Fed's assumptions. Um, I do think that the Fed is constrained, however, no matter what happens with the 10-year yield. So if the yield curve flattens, which I expect, actually, then the Fed's going to feel really constrained in its hikes. Um, because it doesn't want to invert the yield curve. If the yield curve uh, steepens and the 10-year pops up, as some people expect, then that actually has, the 10-year has a heavy weighting in most financial conditions indices, and I think that's wrong. I think we should learn how to construct them better. But in the meantime, the Fed will see that financial conditions are tightening significantly, and they'll be constrained then, too. So either way, the Fed has a pretty gradual path baked in, and I think that, you know, this suggests they're going to continue along that. What, Megan Green, what is the, uh, the, the, the future of investment that you see? One of the themes last week was really beginning to analyze use of cash, share buybacks cash, versus actually mm-hmm. spending it on tangible things. I don't even know how that works in the service sector, but are we seeing investment? We're not really. We started to see some investment, and it came through in CapEx spending uh, at the turn of the year um, off the back of the tax bill. So some firms were incentivized to bring forward some of their CapEx spending. Um, and then we saw that stop. And, you know, when I speak to Fed regional presidents who spend all their time going out and talking to firms in their regions, um, they'll say that companies are telling them that they were thinking about investing, but actually all of this uncertainty around trade has made them decide but they're just going to delay and defer. So I think, unfortunately, trade is kind of offset the benefits of the tax bill in terms of investment. So we're not seeing much indication that we're getting this kind of surge in investment that lots of people were hoping for. Yeah, John, I think this is just critical. I yeah. mean, it's, it's really like the, the new. It's the new thing. The administration are very bullish on a supply-side response to the fiscal stimulus. Like, yeah. They believe that you can get really strong output growth without the accompanying inflation that some people might expect to come with it. And they expect that because they think that a lot of this fiscal stimulus is going to go into investment. And if it doesn't happen, Tom, they're going to get a very different economy than the one they, uh, they expect. Yeah. It's just there, and it's not moving. Megan, do you have a statistic for Q4 and Q1 GDP? Yeah, so I, you know, Q3 was 3.5. I think 3% growth in Q4 would be fantastic. I think it might come in a bit lower than that, and I think wow. Q1 will look similar. So the, the best is behind us, I think. Um, wow. Most of the fiscal stimulus that we've had coming down the line hit in the first three quarters of this year, and will peter out until the end of next year. And then the real question <clears> is, what is going to happen in terms of fiscal stimulus um, from then on? Are we going to hit yeah. the fiscal cliff or will the government re-up? And that will depend entirely yeah. on the midterm election. Megan Green with us. Thrilled she's with us with Manual Life. Jared Bernstein, who was economic counselor to Vice President Biden, but far more than that,
the liberal in Washington, the conservatives were forced to read at gunpoint uh, over decades on our job dynamics. Jared, I wanted to ask you a question I asked earlier this morning, which is if we have a Make America Great Again surge, and we all understand that those gains went to the gilded of the gilded age, if we get a slowdown, do the disadvantages of a slowdown come from those that are gilded or is it asymmetric where they come from the broad middle class? Which is it? At least over the last few decades, it's been pretty asymmetric in that the folks at the very top of the scale, in part because their fortunes don't rise and fall as much uh, on the job market, uh, have been pretty insulated from the ups and downs of the business cycle. Middle and lower income folks have benefited disproportionately from the very low unemployment rates we've had. So if that reverses, they'll take the hit. What would Vice President Biden do? You worked with a gentleman. He would be Mm -hmm. there 24 hours to go to a campaign. He's being quiet for all the Biden reasons. I get that. But what would he say right now in terms of the final message Democrats need? I think what he would say is that you really, you know, one of his themes has always been who's got your back. And he's really looked at that from the perspective of the middle class, from the perspective of working people, from unions. And I really think, I believe he feels that today's government, particularly the conservative majority, simply doesn't have the backs of middle and lower class, uh, working class folks. And he'd think about policies that would steer more of the growth their way. Uh, Jared Bernstein, just to uh, broaden the conversation, maybe just take in the economies of Asia, if you don't mind. Do you sure. have any thoughts as to who's got the back of the major economies of Asia? And I'm thinking Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. Do they still feel that the United States has their back? I would suspect that they don't, or at least that the American administration, the Trump administration, doesn't have their back. I mean, this is uh, not exactly breaking news, but this is one of the most protectionist administrations we've seen. I think what they would probably look at it and, uh, is the fact that global trade flows remain strong. And uh, in fact, uh, if anything, the U.S trade deficit has gotten worse because our dollar's strong and our relative growth rates are much stronger than theirs. So we're pulling in more exports and uh, exporting less. In that sense, Trump's trade war is backfiring. So on the, on the macroeconomic and international trade flow level, uh, you know, they're doing pretty much as they've done. But in terms of trade policy, uh, they've got to be uh, quite nervous. Well, it, uh, the reason I asked this is because it seems as though the attitude toward China and the economic relationship with China seems to be consistent on Democrat and Republican voices. So I'm trying to understand if you happen to be a country that is caught in the middle and have to choose between the United States and China, how are you going to make that decision? You know, I think it's a great point. And in fact, one of the things that I've commented on when people have asked me about the outcomes of the midterms, suppose the Democrats take the House. Now, from my perspective, that would be a, a positive thing, so, simply because of so much of the bad domestic policy that's been coming down. I think they'd help in that regard. But there's no suggestion that House Democrats would be, say, more friendly to international trade than, uh, than the current majority. In fact, that, that could flip the other way. Well... 
I mean, the flip and the flop, and we'll know on Wednesday, I guess, where that's going as well. Jared, in terms of legislative input within your economics, but just within your political economics as well, how critical is a barely Democratic House from a more dominant Democratic House? Does that really matter? I don't know that that matters Thank that you. much. Thank you. Yeah, I don't given, think it does. Yeah, yeah. Given that the Senate uh, is, is uh, if, if the Senate remains Republican, um, <clears throat> I think that the uh, the House is going to be put. If, if the House flips, they're just going to be putting up a ton of legislation that will be more of a signal to their yeah. voters than something they expect to get through. Is that an effective program? Well, you know, when the Republicans were doing that with the House Republicans were doing that with Obamacare, they sent up 60 bills to repeal Obamacare that never went anywhere. I was sitting there saying this is an extremely ineffective program. What I should have realized, very naive of me, especially an old timer like myself, was that this wasn't a legislative program. It was a signal to uh, the electorate. And in that sense, I think it may have been somewhat effective. And I think the Democrats uh, want to send a, a, a kind of a, 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 a very different signal, yeah. but a similar strategic one. Where's the investment? I've asked all day, asked Megan Green, asked every Harm Bondles, everybody else. Jared Bernstein, I know you're thunderstruck. That thud I heard was you falling off your chair on K Street where you work. What, what was the <laughs> idea that there'd be a tax bill and there'd be investment involved? I'm hearing from other people there doesn't seem to be all that investment. Let me guess, Dr. Bernstein's not shocked. Not shocked? I mean, look, <laughs> before the tax bill, as you folks know better than anyone, the price of capital, the price of investment was extremely low. Corporations were already sitting on large tranches of cash, uh, retained earnings, strong profits. So if they wanted to engage in a deep investment push, you know, they would have done so. It's true that the after-tax cost of capital is lower now, but we're just not seeing the investment push. And frankly, and this is where your, your sarcasm uh, definitely lands with me, this has been the case every time we've tried the supply side trickle down stuff. It just doesn't work. I'm not saying that it has no impact on the economy, but the idea that it's going to markedly change growth rates or pay for itself, that's just ludicrous. But at the same time, in addition to campaigns and elections for House and Senate seats and governor seats, there are lots of ballot initiatives out there to raise financing for municipal bonds to do just the kind of infrastructure that has been talked about at the federal level. States and municipalities are going ahead and doing it anyway. Well, good for them. I mean, in, in, you know, what the, Tom was asking me about private investment. I think where we've dropped the ball is, is clearly on public investment. And by the way, that's not a liberal or a conservative view. I know lots of uh, conservatives, Republicans, would love us to do much more infrastructure investment, uh, particularly in the public goods that enhance national productivity. And so I think it would be a great uh, uh, endeavor if, if uh, uh, public sector or subnational level did more investment. I think one of the challenges there is that interest rates are rising. I mean, it's still a good time to do this, but it was a better time a couple of years ago. Jared, thank you so much. Jared Bernstein, just thrilled to have you with us here the day before oh, great talking to you. the election. Jared Bernstein with uh, his thoughts on economics, uh, both left and right, and uh, Jared Bernstein with his public service and, and uh, assisting the vice, former vice president. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.